We're in Matthew chapter 5, and this is kind of the touchstone. Matthew 5, 13. Jesus said, it's in red letters, so I know it's Jesus. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. So we are salt to the earth. You are salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned again? It's, not, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Then he uses another example. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they hide a lamp, but put it under a basket. Or, and, or, and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand so that it can give light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're looking especially at verse 13 that says, You are salt, the, the salt of the earth. Salt has a purpose, and the purpose of it, one of the purposes is to enhance or affect the flavor of what it's put on, to increase your appetite, your desire for it. And the principle here is is what we're talking about is we are called as Christians to live a separated life. Salt, in order for it to have value, has to be different than the food that it's put on or in. So if you put salt on your meat or if you put salt in your casserole, if you put salt on your food to bring out its flavor, but that salt has lost its saltiness, it has no value. You might as well not use it. Salt also has a purpose in the old days for preserving meat, preserving food. Nowadays we have refrigeration. But if it's lost its saltiness, it's lost its ability to preserve, so it's lost its value. So we're looking at this, and this is so important in the day and age that you and I live in, because there's such pressure upon us to be like the world, to be accepted. Issues come up now in churches that, that never used to come up before. Issues come up in our family. And, you know, issues of, you know, things that, that you don't necessarily see a, a clear-cut answer in your Bible. You know, there's tr- trends now, and I'm not looking at anybody, thinking about anybody, so I'm not, I'm not on your case about something. But, you know, when I grew up, you never dealt with men wearing earrings unless they were pirates, all right? And you, by and large, didn't deal with men and women tattooing their body unless they were sailors. And, you know, that is, is it okay to do those things? And I began to go to God and say, Lord, show me. Is, are these things okay or not okay? And the Lord's answer to me fits in with what we're going to talk about tonight. And the Lord says, well, what's the motive? See, a lot of times we look at these things and say, are they right or are they wrong? The issue isn't, and there's some things clearly in the Bible that are wrong. Fornication is wrong. Those kinds of things are clearly wrong. There's no debate about it. There's no side issues. Doing it's wrong. But there are issues, other issues the Bible doesn't necessarily address directly. How do we know whether those are right or wrong? Well, one of the ways is to look at what's behind it. What's the message? I remember when our, some of our kids were, were growing up and they were going through the stage where they wanted to, you know, we would go to the, buy clothes for them. And, you know, when they're younger, you buy the clothes and they've got to wear what you buy. When they hit their teens, they want to have some say about what they're going to wear. Well, that begins to present challenges to parents who look at what they want to wear, especially if they're daughters or even sons. And I remember one time when our, some of our kids were, we went in to buy clothes, and I said, well, you know, what, what you want? remember, understand this, dad's paying. And because dad's paying, dad has final say. But I want you to learn how to make wise choices. 
So it's not just I'm going to force things on you because then when you're 18, you go off to school, you're going to make your own decisions. So I want you to learn what's right and wrong and why it's right and wrong. So I let them loose in a store. I still can picture it. I remember the store. It's not far from here. They got loose in the store and they came back with these pants that were about this wide that they wanted to wear somewhere just north of their knees. I don't mean the bottom of them. I mean the top of them. And that's still in style today. I mean, these big bags. We were talking the other day about this, and they were laughing at that now because they're older. And, you know, because they're coming to me, they said, well, show me the scriptures where that's wrong. (laughs) Kids will challenge you. And you can't just say, because I'm your parent. Well, you know, ultimately that's true, but I want them to learn, so I've got to go find out the answer. So that means I've got to go pray. I've got to ask God, what's right and what's wrong? And, and, and the, the answer the Lord gave me is, you know, there are some things that, that, that we do that are, are, that are an expression of our tastes. Okay? You know, how you wear your hair maybe, or, you know, there's certain things that are a matter of taste. And there's nothing wrong with having individual tastes. But there's, I don't know why I'm getting off on this tonight, but there's some things uh, that we wear and there's some things we do are not just an expression of taste, they're a statement. And when what we do and how we conduct ourselves is a statement, we need to go back and find out what is it we're stating. And as I prayed about some of these things, the Lord says, well, I wasn't interested in wearing any of the, doing any of these things. But the question the Lord says that He has is, why do you want to? Why do you want to tattoo your body? I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not on that issue. That's between you and God. Why do you want to do this particular thing? What the Lord brought back to me, in many cases, the reason why especially young people want to do it is they want to be doing what the world's doing. And that's what began to trigger this series in me. Because the church has lost, in many ways, lost the, draw, the, the, the motivation to do things because God says so and not because the world, to be accepted by the world. What we're really looking for so much, and especially our young people, and it's understandable, because when we, we want to be accepted is we're looking to be accepted and so therefore we want to do the things that people around us accept and the world accepts these things as part of our culture, things that in my generation growing up and most of your generation grew up, you never would see, but now they're so common that even people my generation are doing it because it's what our culture says is normal. And the problem is if the church begins to adopt what the world says is normal and acceptable, then we are losing our saltiness. We have to understand that part of our purpose in the earth is to be, look, talk, and act in a way that is different than the world. Because Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 that I'm putting the Spirit of God in you so that you can be witnesses of me. He was a witness of his father. Got him in all kinds of trouble. But he was faithful to his father. So we have to be willing to be different than the world. That doesn't mean we've got to be weird. We've talked about that. That doesn't mean we've got to be isolated. It doesn't mean that you've got to wear your clothes up to here and a bun on the top of your head. 
but it does mean some things you've got to ask yourself, why am I doing it? Where is my heart? And that's kind of where we left off because we're talking about obstacles to, being, to living a separated life. And the enemy is clever. He has put landmines out there. Paul says at one point, he says, don't be ignorant of his devices. Satan has tricks and devices out there that are designed to trap us, ensnare us. Hebrews chapter 12 talks in the beginning, he says, therefore lay aside every weight and the sins that so easily beset us. Those sins are not the moral sins in some cases. They are little attitudes of the heart. And so what we were talking about is the very first, the very first obstacle that we have that faces us and really is the root of a lot of it is, is we're too much in love with the world. So we looked at, let's turn quickly to 1 John. We're going to come back to Matthew. 1 John chapter, chapter 2. This is what we looked at the last time when we, I was together with you on Wednesday. First chapter, first John chapter two fifteen. Do not love the world. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy things, but there's a difference between enjoying something and loving it. Do not love the world or the things, the things in the world. If anyone loves the lo- the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. But you've, you, we're going to see in a minute, you can't love the world and God. I'm not saying you can't enjoy it. I'm not saying, you know, you can't have a hamburger or you can't watch television. The question is, what, what, the, whole, the issue with almost all of this is your heart. What is your heart given to? What are you letting in your heart? What are you leaning your heart towards? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And just in case you want to know the scorecard on it, verse 17 says, The world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So there's a pull on us. There's a pull on us. There's a battle to plant in your heart. There's a battle to sow in your life, to sow in your mind and to sow in your life things of this world, the love of this world, because it is a snare, because this world's passing away. What are you going to do when it passes away? Then what you put your love into and your affections are going to pass away. Hebrews talks about, talks about that, that there's coming a time when there's going to be a great shaking, shaking. And everything that can be shaken is going to fall apart. Well, if we've invested our love in our lives in the things of this world, then, then the foundation of your life is going to get shaken out from underneath you. It is going to leave you without a foundation to stand solid on at a time when the church needs to stand to be solid, when you need to be solid for your family, for your loved ones. But if we're trying to hang on by, the, by, the, by our fingernails because what we've, what we've been standing all along is gone, then we're in trouble. So this isn't even just about the witness to the world because we can't be a witness to the world if we're barely making it ourselves, if we're in survival mode. You understand we're not here to survive. We're here to overcome. Jesus does not say in the book of Revelation, these rewards come to him who survives. It's to him who overcomes. Well, that means there's things to overcome and in order to overcome, 
it's so critical what our hearts invested in. So go back with me now to Matthew. And this is where we left off last time. We were in Matthew chapter 6. And we started at verse 19 where he says, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is the point. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Whatever you value, whatever you value in your life, whatever is precious to you, is what your heart's attached to. And understand this, there's an enemy of your soul out there who's trying to sow seeds in your heart of, of his value system. Because if he can sow seeds in your heart of his value system, at the other end of that seed, it's a string, is he can pull on that anytime he needs to. And pull you away from God and the things of God. He says, but the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. We've talked about this before. But if your eye is bad or evil or disease, that means, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What he's talking about here is the same function that your eye has for your body, your heart has for your soul and your spirit. Your eye determines what light gets into you what you can see and what you can't see. And he says, if your eye is diseased, cataracts, stigmatism, if your eye is diseased, then there's light getting in your eye, but it's not reliable because it's being distorted by the disease that's in your eye. And now he goes into chapter, verse 24. So what's that all about? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and this world, mammon. You can be in the world, but you can't serve it and God. Now, you can think you can. You can believe you can, but God's saying you can't. And my money's on him. Now, now look what he gets into... This is not a new subject. Verse 25, therefore, I've taught you this before. When you see the word therefore, go look on what's above it because what he's about to say is based on what he just said. So this is a continuation of this idea. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, what you will drink, or your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your Father knows, Heavenly Father knows that, you've, know that you need them. Are, not, are you of not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add a cubit to his stature? For why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lily of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, the rich, one of the richest men that's ever lived. Therefore, now if God so clothes the... Verse 230. If God so clothes the grass of the field which is today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven... How will he not more, much more clothe you? Oh, you clothe you. Oh, you of little faith. And here's the mo message. Here's the moral of it. 
Therefore, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Now, he's not saying, don't be discerning about what you eat and don't have a choice about what you wear. He's not saying don't consider it, don't think about it. There's a difference between considering things and thinking about things and planning for things and worrying about them. Because our unrenewed mind says, we go, but it's normal to worry. It, but normal isn't God. If your goal is to be normal, then what you're saying is, I don't, hey, I don't need a saltiness. My goal is to be like the world because the world's what the standard of normal is. But for Christians, God is our standard of what normal. His word is our standard by which we should be striving for. That's the standard by which we should be living, not looking at the world. That's the problem. The church is looking at the world to decide what our standard is, and therefore that's as high as we can go, and so we're losing our saltiness. And if we lose our saltiness, we lose our purpose. God still loves us. Still go to heaven, but then when we get there, we're going to stand before him and we're going to have to face the fact that we didn't do what we're supposed to do. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. The world's looking much more at who you are than what you do. It looks at what we do, but you can do one thing and be something else. That's called a hypocrite. And Jesus had some things to say about hypocrites. Say amen, amen. or oh me. <laughs> All right. Therefore, do not worry and say, what shall we eat? So worrying's another level. And you're going to see why in a minute. For all these things the Gentiles seek. Now when you're seeking something, you're invested in it. You're going after it. You're longing for it. You're desiring it. You're doing things that are necessary to get it. It's one thing to need something and to desire it. It's another thing to seek it. This word implies a passion going after something. It implies a drive, a need. So I can't sit still. I have to have this. And he says the Gentiles are driven by having to seek after these things. Their heart is set on these things. Their heart is set on what they're wearing. Their heart is setting on what they're eating. Their heart is set on what's what going to happen to them. Their heart is set on... Just turn your television on and look at the advertising. The advertising tells us our culture. Because advertising is based on what's going to make those companies money and they've decided what you need. So they're going to put it on television to tell you what you want. And the whole purpose of that, phys- that thing in front of you, the whole purpose of that ad, there's a science to it. There's a science to wear on a page to put the central part of the message. I've discovered when you go into the grocery store, they don't just haphazardly put those products on different shelves. There's studies, a science to show what shelf is the most attractive to their ideal customer. 
And do you know that some of those producers pay a premium to be on that shelf? They're planning to get your money. They know how to get your money. And the way they have to do it is by stirring up a desire in you for something so that you have to have it. You've got to have the latest one of these. Or the latest... I mean, and I've got to deal with this stuff too. I love gadgets, especially electronic ones. I'm a boy. I'm still a kid. You know? It's different toys. They have different price tags, you know, different buttons, but they're still toys. But when they're going to come out with a new one of these and people are lined up all night... I mean, they're going to have some the next day or at least the next week. It's not like you don't have one and it's broken and you desperately got to have one. They've got to have the latest. Then there's something that's triggered in them that has to have something that they're now seeking. Their hearts, they're treasuring something. And the danger of that is it's not, this, the, it's not the thing itself in most cases, although there are some that they're dangerous in themselves that we can be craving or lusting after. It's the fact that our heart's given over to it. We're giving it a place in our heart that belongs to God. And God's Word says, you can't do that with me and with things. I want you to see what the enemy's after. Little decisions and choices we make. And here's what it is. Verse 32 says that the the world seeks after these. They invest their treasure, their desire, their heart in these things. Look at verse 33. But what we are to do is seek first. So what this is all about is what our heart's seeking. The whole discussion about the eye and letting light in is using that as a physical example to show us what our heart is, how critical our heart is. Proverbs, I think it's 16, says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of light. All diligence. Not just consider it, but whatever you're going to protect about yourself. Above all things... God's Word says, protect your heart. And here's why. Because your heart determines what you're seeking. Your heart determines your effectiveness for God. Because that's what people can sense and feel. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then you can have all those things as long as your heart's set seeking Him and His kingdom and His righteousness first. Just give you a couple examples of some people that didn't exactly do this right. Esau. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of oatmeal. Balaam sold his prophetic gift for money. Jude 11 uses them as examples for us. Judas 
sold his Savior and his Master and his Lord for pieces of silver. Matthew 19, verse 16 through 22, tells the story of a rich man that came to Jesus. And I believe he was sincere, saying, Master, what do I need to do to get into heaven? He said, well, you need to keep the law. He says, I've done that from my youth. He says, well, that's wonderful. There's only one thing that you lack. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. Now listen to the invitation he's given. There was another man that came to Jesus and said, I want to be one of your disciples. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, he, had to, he sent him back to his village. There was the, man, the madman in Gadarene, Gadara, that Jesus delivered from those legions of demons and wanted to follow him. He said, no, no, you go back to your village. This is a man Jesus invited to be one of his disciples. He says, there's only one thing you lack. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Does that mean we've all got to sell all we have? No. He recognized in this man that his riches were his treasure. And he proved it by telling him what to do. And it says the, young, the rich man walked sorrowfully away. You notice Jesus didn't go after him. He made a choice. You cannot serve God and mammon. His treasure was in the things that he had. All right. That's the first of the obstacles we run into. I just wanted to finish that up tonight, which is the love of the world. The second one is similar to that. It's related to it. Go to Proverbs 29. And this gets even more practical down to where we live. So the first obstacle that we have to deal with and overcome... And it's always out there because Satan's always trying to sow treasure into our hearts is the love of the world and the things of the world. Notice that Jesus said worry is seeking the world. I didn't finish that thought. Worry is seeking the world. Because what's worry saying? Worry is saying, I've got to have that more than God. If I don't have that... If I don't have clothes, if I don't have these things, I'm not going to make it. And Jesus is saying, but seek first the kingdom of God. You can have those things. God will take care of you. He'll provide your needs. And earlier, he says, he, he knows what you're going to ask Him before you ask Him because He knows what you need before you ask. So He's watching over you. All He wants is your heart in Him first. But when we're worrying, we're placing that natural need in a place in our heart above Him. We're seeking that above Him, and we're saying, I don't believe He's going to take care of me. So therefore, I'll be anxious about it. All right. Proverbs 29. Verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So the second obstacle that we've got to deal with that, we have to, that, 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 that pulls at us to keep us, to f- try to pressure us to be like the world is the fear of man, of what others think of us. And this is a powerful one. Peer pressure. What other people think of us. It's built into our human nature to be accepted, to be loved, to have value. 
in God's plan for the family, God's design for the family, which is to have a man and a woman who are in a covenant love relationship with each other, and in the context of that, God has authorized the physical activity that produces life, children. That's one of the reasons that that sexual relationship outside of marriage is prohibited by God because it's outside the covenant relationship of commitment because that activity has the ability to create life and God only ordains the creation of life in that context. And the reason for that is because then this child comes forth and one of the purposes of parenthood is to prepare our children for a relationship with their heavenly father. And when they're three months, six months, three years, four years, they can't understand what, what that's like. So God wants to have a father and a mother who love Him and are serving Him and love one another and, and, and care about one another and have a covenant commitment with one another who are being living examples of this to that child. And therefore, in that relationship, they are beginning to build into that child the very foundational emotional needs that that every human being has. To be loved, the most basic one. To know I'm loved, I have value is another one. That I'm accepted because it's in that security, that cocoon, that matrix of, of a loving and accepting family that, that, that a child can begin to grow and mature and have the freedom to make mistakes and learn how to make choices. And, and, and that's what all this is about, which is why Satan hates it so much and has done everything he can to destroy it and pervert it, which is why we now are threatened with younger generations that have no concept of those. So what do they do? They still have to get the need met. They still have to get the need for acceptance and a value met in their lives, so they've got to go seek it somewhere else. And who's going to provide it now? But Satan provides it through gangs, through drugs, through alcohol, through all the things of this world to suck their hearts in and capture their hearts. And so it is, we need to be loved. We need to know that we're loved. We need to know that we're accepted. We need to know that we're valuable. We need to know that we have security. That's a need to be built into our psyche, into our personality, into our soul. So there's nothing wrong with that. We need those. What's wrong with that is where we go get it, where we seek it from. And see, a, a child that's been raised to be safe and secure and, and like that can begin to handle rejection from other people outside because they're secure enough in themselves in their relationship with their family and then beginning and ultimately a relationship with God. If you are an insecure person, you're vulnerable. I had to deal with this my whole life because I was not raised in that kind of a family. I was raised in a family where love was used as a tool to manipulate and control. Sometimes very subtle, sometimes not so subtle. And I don't want to get into all the difficulties, but it, it injured me, it scarred me. I grew up not having any confidence that I could love. I remember that when, when Anita and I were getting married, talking to the minister who was a friend of ours and telling him, I don't, have, I don't have any confidence that I can love one person for my entire life. And he said, the problem is you don't have confidence that you're capable of loving. And early on I began to realize as a Christian 
that the answer was not in, and there's nothing wrong with psychology, there's nothing wrong with those things, but they, they, they can't fill that need. They, I can't go back and have my parents do again for me what they didn't do for me a few years ago, 60-some <laughs> years ago. I can't go back and do that, and even the best parents don't do it perfectly. And then I began to discover from the Word of God, I have a Heavenly Father. And I began to go to Him consciously every day and saying, I have weaknesses in me, insecurities in me, struggles in me, that, that I, you know, I forgave my parents, I let it all go, but I still have the hole in me, which is what it is, it's a hole inside. That, that until this, I'm trying to fill by getting approval by people. And I could go through an entire day and everybody say, oh, you're wonderful, you're great, feeling great. And if the last person I saw before I came home just looked at me funny, it destroyed my whole day because I needed every person, every moment of every day to reassure me that I was okay. And I realized, there's a problem there because you can't get that all the time and even if you do, it doesn't satisfy. You're not sure they really mean it. And then you get married and now the problem is I'm trying to get that from my wife. And she can't do that. She can love me and does love me dearly, but she can't fill that hole. And so what happens in a marriage is we try to get that filled from our spouse. And God began to make clear to me, He says, you're making your wife into your God. You're trying to get her to provide something for you only I can provide. So you're putting her pressure on her to be something and do something I didn't desire her to and it will destroy you and your relationship with her if you don't change that. So I began to shift where I sought that from, from her to him. And it's a process. This is where I learned. All that I taught you about renewing the mind came from this struggle. I didn't get it in books. I got it from my own walk with God. See, if you sincerely go to Him and be honest with Him and present, call upon Him to be a father to you, to teach you, to instruct you, He will do it. He's faithful. And I would do that in the morning. I still do it from time to time. I, I said it this morning. I need a father. I need a father to tell me how to do this, to teach me these things, to train me. I need a father to build things into me that my father didn't build into me. And as I began to do that, He began to fill that hole. I couldn't do that like once. I had to do that every day for a long time. Take promises in His Word and, and have Him show me things. And it wasn't just all a straight up. It was up and down and up and down and up and down. Because the enemy is not just letting this go. But it works. This is why you've got to put the Word of God in. This is why you've got to spend time with Him. You've got to cry out to Him. He knows where you are. He knows your needs. He knows the hole in you. He wants to fill the hole in you. But this is the thing that gets in the way. We talked about that in Renewing the Mind. This is the gate that controls what gets down inside of you and controls what comes out which is why we've got to get into this Word and go over Scriptures and over Scriptures and over Scriptures of He loves me, He loves me, He loves me, He loves me, whether it makes sense to you or not, and begin to change the program in this brain to accept the truth of God's love for you. And here's the problem, because until we are secure inside, the enemy is going to use people, the need for people, and the Bible says it's a snare. 
which means if you look at it this way, when we have that vulnerability, Satan is, has a hold on you, a part of you. And when he needs it most, he won't use it all the time because you can get used to it. When he needs it most, just as you're beginning, this is what would happen to me. I just get filled with God's love and I get, just begin to go after something. I'm going to serve you with all my heart. And the next thing you know, someone comes along and I'm threatened. This is one of the reasons why when I pastored before, God led me to get out and go back into law because I was very insecure. I could preach, do this teaching, and the gifting of God was flowing and the anointing was flowing, and I'd finish and I'd be so insecure if no people didn't come up to me and tell me what a great job I'd done. And that's a terrible way to minister. It's a terrible way to live, and some of you know what I'm talking about. God loved me so much to say, Son, you need to sit down for a while and you need to come and have me sit on one of these blue chairs here because I need to make you whole inside. He loves me that much that he would put the ministry aside for me to be made whole. And one of the verses I began to cling to is in Psalm 23. He restores my soul. And I used to stand on that and cry out to him, you're my father, my soul needs to be made whole, restored, and the only thing that can do that is you. You are the only thing that can do that. There's no person, there's no thing, there's no gift, there's no anything that can satisfy that. Only you can satisfy that. And that's true for you too. So the Word's teaching us that the need for the approval of man, which is the fear of man, what do they think of me? Young people growing up get so concerned about how they look to the point that parents look at them and say, you're beautiful. And you know, you get young girls that, that, that become, that, 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 was it anorexic? Is that the one where you don't eat? Yeah, they become anorexic when they were already thin. Why? They're, they're not dealing with reality. They're dealing with wrong thinking in their mind and it's all based on, I don't know what people think of me. They think I'm too fat. They think I'm too ugly. They think I'm too this when the reality is it doesn't matter what other people think. But we've got to have somebody believe in us, and if it's not God, we're going to go get it from people. And if you don't have godly people in your life who will steer you to God, then you're going to be, have the enemy feeding that into you. And it's very purposeful. It's a snare to catch us and to hold us. The opinion of others control us too often. So how can we be salt to the world? How we're afraid to be different because it comes at the very root of the problem. If I'm different, I'm going to be rejected. I'm not going to be accepted and I need to be accepted. So I, and we'll go anywhere to get that acceptance, especially the world. And the church is so insecure. Why? Because we've not developed a relationship with God that satisfies we do the things of God. We come to church and exercise and do all the things of God, but we've not developed a relationship with a God that fills our inner need, a personal relationship with Him. We know about Him. We've taken faith to the point that we've removed. We're not led by our feelings, but we've taught, we've taught faith so much we've thrown feelings out. I've been in love with that woman for 47 and a half years. And I feel more in love with her today than I'd ever had before. And I like the feeling of feeling in love for her, with her. 
it gives life to it. It gives meaning to the relationship. Do I feel that way every moment of every... No. And if I don't feel it, I don't think, oh my gosh, I don't love her today. But I'm, I'm working. I'm, I'm purposefully stimulating and stirring the feelings because it what gives passion to the relationship. It makes the relationship real, tangible. And that's true with God. So much of the church has a relationship with God through our minds and not the passion of our heart. That's what's missing. That's why we're not witnessing for Him. Because you talk, I talk about her because I'm in love with her. It's not because it's on my notes here. At this point, you talk about your wife. We don't talk about Jesus because we're not in love with Him. It's not a living, vital passionate, experiential relationship. And when you have that, it satisfies. It fills the longing. It fills the need. Let's go to John chapter 12. Let's quickly look at a couple. We won't finish this today, tonight. Let's look at some examples of this. John chapter 12. You know, we often think, well, you know, I know the Lord by faith and, you know, that's good, but boy, if I, if I could have lived back when He walked on the earth, it would have been so much easier because I could see Him. I could see the miracles. Well, let's look at some people that could see Him. Verse 37. Although he had done many, so many signs before them, this is talking to some of the leaders, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet may be fulfilled, which spoke, the Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, and lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn that they be healed, that he, I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. This is where the church is. Many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why? Because they loved heart issue. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. This is what this is all about. It comes down to our heart. It's an issue of the heart. What am I in love with? What is my heart seeking? What is my heart treasure and value? And Jesus is saying, John is saying about them, that, that many of the leaders believed in him, but they were closet believers, like so many of us. They believed in him, which is good, but they wouldn't publicly confess him because the moment they opened their mouth and became identified with him, there were consequences to it. They would be put out of the synagogue. And they, that, their acceptance by the people in the synagogue was more of a treasure to their heart than what their acceptance by Jesus, than their acceptance of him. And he says what it is. Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So it comes back to what are we seeking? 
Who are we seeking? We need approval. We need acceptance. You can't just steal yourself and cut it off. I'm an island unto myself. I don't need to be loved. I don't need to be accepted. That's denial. That's not going to work. Because then what you have is you have no, you're not a witness of him. You're, you're just, you're cold. And this is what I used to do. I used to just get in a cave inside of myself and harden myself and say, I'm not, nobody's going to hurt me. Nobody's going to get in there. The problem is nobody can get out. I can't get out. God can't get out and he can't get in. See, when you put a wall up to people, you put a wall up to God. You can't have a wall on one side to people and an open side to God on the other because there's either a wall there or there's not a wall there. And I put a wall there to protect me, but I was keeping the relationship, the intimacy with God out as well as the intimacy with my wife and my family. And I understand why I was doing it, but I was lonely inside. I was hurting inside until I began to open the door and let God in. And that's what he's talking about here. So we need that acceptance. We need that love. We need that approval. So the answer is to not deny that I need it. The answer is to get it from the source God has ordained, to go to him for that. And as he begins to fill that hole, as he begins to fill that need in you, as he begins to satisfy, one of the examples of that I think is so, so, so touching to me, and we've been talking about that on Sunday mornings, is when Jesus says to the woman at the well, now remember there's a woman who was broken. There's a woman with five failed marriages. Five of them. Failed marriages to the point that she gave up on marriage and she's just living with the next guy. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Jesus doesn't judge her. Jesus goes to the heart of the need because she had a hole in her that she was trying to fill with these relationships. And so what Jesus does instead is he introduces himself to her. He says, I have something that you need. You think it's physical water, but I have something that if you ask of me is living water, that when you drink of this water, it will satisfy every need in you, every hole in you. It will fill every nook and every cranny that's empty and hole in you and you will become a full and a whole person the way my Father ordained and designed you to be. But it's only me that can do that. It's only the relationship. Something triggered in her because what did she do? She ran right out and began to tell people. She didn't understand who he was. She didn't know much about him. All she knew is, come and tell. I met a man. They said, yeah, you've met a man, all right. We know you've met a man. What's new? Tell us something new. But there had to be something different about the way she said it because the people followed her back out. So something had changed in her, something they saw about her, something about what she had experienced, they realized was different. Wasn't her theology, certainly wasn't her understanding of the word. She didn't really know who he was yet. She just knew that there was something about him that began to satisfy her and make her come alive. And she was bold enough to go tell the men of the city to come meet a man, risking that they could have laughed at her and rebuked her and made fun of her. But she didn't care what they thought. She didn't care what they thought. Salt. She was salt to her city. Salt to this earth, being different. It's not just a cold, hard decision. I'm going to go out there and be different. 
because you probably won't carry it out, or if you do, it's going to just be by being strong in your own willpower. That's not projecting Christ. It's as they begin to see something in you out of your heart. That's what drew people to Jesus. It wasn't in his teaching, his doctrine. It was something he cared. There was God's love in them, in him, that drew them to him. And it's got to be God's love in us. But if you haven't accepted it yet, it's hard to give it. So much of the church is trying to give something it's not yet full of. We're trying to give something that we're not yet full of. We're going to have to end here and we'll pick up here in two weeks. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your word. You deal with us where we live. And you deal with us down at the issues of the heart where we live that's important to you. Father, there are people in here tonight that I strongly suspect can identify with some of what they've heard. There are people in here tonight, there are holes in them, and they know what I'm talking about. Down deep in their soul, down deep inside, there are wounds, there are things that love and acceptance that should have been built into them that has not been built into them. In the course of their life, they've tried to fill that with other things. Some of them may be illegal things, and you may have already delivered them from that, but with others of us, it may not have been drugs or something illegal. It may be just the approval of people. We've put too much value on the acceptance of other people, and yet we can't just cut it off because there's this inner need in us. Father, we call upon you by faith tonight to come into our lives as our Father. We know you're our God. We know you're ultimately our judge. We know you're the king. We know you're the creator of the universe. But in the New Testament, Jesus reveals you over and over and over again as our Father who art in heaven, our Father who knows we have need of these things, our Father who gives more than we ask, our Father who loves us and accepts us as his child, our Father. And I come to you tonight, Father, to call upon you, especially in the lives of those people to whom I've been talking tonight, that you'd begin to reveal yourself, your love, your acceptance right where they are, your caring, that you'd wrap your arms around them so hard and so tight that they would know that nothing that this world can do can separate them from you and nothing that this world can offer can take your place by your precious Holy Spirit begin to fill us with that living water in Jesus' precious name